Let's turn finally in our Bibles to our sermon text, which is Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, where we pick up in our story. We're going to read down through verse 23. Uh, You'll see here, this is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And then uh, Luke, just at the very, very end of our reading here, uh, just naturally kind of bleeds into, spills into the third journey, which we'll come to, uh, Lord willing, soon. So verse 1 of Acts 18. After this, Paul in Athens, uh, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, that's on the south coast of the Black Sea, so northern Turkey today, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor of Rome, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That happened around the year, uh, it happened in 49 AD, we know that for a fact. Uh, And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned, here Paul, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. We've seen that, that's his pattern all throughout. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be in your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that he baptized Crispus and his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have seen, for I have in, in this city many uh, who are my people. And he say, stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, that's the region, the, the province of which Corinth is the capital, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, the the new ruler of the synagogue, because Crispus believed, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cancrae, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. 
and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, so now he's in the promised land, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the churches. And loved ones, all of God's people say, So here we have Paul traveling from that great, great city, uh, that great ancient city-state, in fact, Athens, which is in the province, or was in the province of Greece, and he has uh, traveled just a bit south uh, over in Isthmus, and he's gone now to Corinth, which was was the capital city of uh, the province of Achaia. So there was Macedonia in the north, that's where he first went, then there was... Uh, then there was Greece, and now Achaia. Now, Corinth was one of the great, great ancient cities of the Greco-Roman world, the Greek uh, and Roman world. Uh, it was a center of trade. It was a place of great, great riches and great wealth and great affluence. And you can see some of the, that, something of that in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, some, somewhere, uh, it had somewhere between, uh, somewhere around... Uh, 750,000 inhabitants. So for an ancient city, this was a massive city. I believe it was uh, the third or fourth largest city uh, in the Roman Empire. About three-quarters of a million people uh, lived in Corinth, a massive city. Now, up on a hill overlooking the city of Corinth, about 2,000 feet in elevation, was a great temple. Like all ancient cities, there was always a great temple at the top. And this temple was to the goddess Aphrodite or Venus, as the Romans knew her. Aphrodite or Venus. Anybody know what, uh, what she was the goddess of? The goddess of love, right? So it's great, uh, there's, great, uh, great, there's great old music in the 60s, right, that, that invoke uh, Aphrodite, uh, even Venus, the goddess of love. In that temple dwelt 1,000 female slaves to be used by worshippers, worshippers in air quotes, this goddess Aphrodite and Venus, and who, were also, who also served that, that large population uh, as prostitutes. Temple sex slaves by day and prostitutes by night. That's Corinth, right? What stays in Corinth, uh, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, as, as we hear that phrase today about Las Vegas. Uh, Corinth was such a city, uh, such a, a, a well-known city uh, for its affluence, but also for its immorality, that there's actually a Greek verb uh, that we can transliterate it as to Corinthianize, but uh, it's, it's translated as to practice immorality. Corinthiazomai. To practice immorality was to Corinthianize. And and uh, to be a harlot, there was a, also a Greek word that was a synonym for to be a harlot, which was uh, to be a Corinthian. In fact, the, the, the feminine form of to be a Corinthian was to be a harlot. It was known for its immorality. It was known for its sin. It was known for its exploitation. It was known for its affluence. People were able uh, to, to treat women in such a way and to worship this female goddess in such a way. And so Paul amazingly spends 18 months there. So throughout our, the story of Acts so far, he, 
he, he never stays this long. He goes to a city and he has great success. And when we're told about how long he stays, it's usually for only a couple of Sabbath days, a few weeks at most. But somehow in God's amazing providence, he stays in this notorious city for 18 months. And we can see something of the outcome of that as he writes to us, or he wrote to them, and we have a record of two letters. There's a, there are at least three, though. He mentions the third letter uh, in his correspondence, but we can read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and get a sense of what that church was all about. Uh, when you think of the, the, the church of the New Testament, you probably have a list maybe in your mind of the, the good churches and the bad churches. The ones that you would want to send your kids away to college to, the ones that you don't want to send them to. Where would you not want to send your kids away to? The church in Corinth, it was an absolute mess. The city was a mess, and the church was a mess. And so Paul, though, had 18 months of ministry there, and he is finishing up this second missionary journey. And we see at the end of our reading, uh, we'll pick up uh, again in Ephesus with Apollos, uh, in Ephesus next Sunday, the third missionary journey, Paul journeys back there. But what did Paul learn, not just in these 18 months in Corinth, but also throughout this second missionary journey, uh, which we saw it began in chapter, uh, it, it began in chapter 14, uh, 15, excuse me, the end of 15, uh, all the way through here. Uh, what has Paul learned and, and what does Paul teach us? What can we learn from this second missionary journey this morning? So if you have your outline there, you can see three, three, three lessons that the apostle uh, learned, and I want us to learn as well. Uh, there's probably a lot more to say, but uh, we'll, keep it, we'll keep it at that. Three little points. First of all, Paul learned this, and, and we, and we shall all need, also need to learn this, that obstacles are opportunities. Obstacles are opportunities. Kids, I want you to think about riding a bike uh, or a scooter, whatever you like to ride through uh, your neighborhood. Uh, and uh, as I was thinking about this this morning, I, w- I wanted to say to all the kids, resist the impulse to get an e-bike. You know, actually pedal. You know, be a kid. Be a kid. Actually pedal a bike for a while. And, uh, you know, when you get a little older, uh, like Pastor Danny, well, then you can get an e-bike. Uh, but ride a bike, you know. So think about riding a bike. Pedaling through your neighborhood, pedaling with your friends, your, you know, your brothers and sisters, uh, and, and your neighbors. Or maybe on a scooter. Now, you come to a sign. You're riding throughout your neighborhood, you're, you're going somewhere, and you come to a sign, and it says, no through traffic. It means you can't go through. No through traffic. Residents only. Right? You probably have seen a sign that says something like that. Maybe it just says dead end. Okay? Even just dead end. Now, do you stop riding your bike when you see a dead end sign? Do you stop, do you get off your scooter, and you hunch your shoulders down, and you, you know, walk back with your tail between your legs, and just go back home and say, well, it was a dead end. I couldn't go any farther. It said residence only. I'm not allowed to go inside there. It said no through traffic. I can't get anywhere. Do you just go home? I hope you ride bikes, and I hope the story makes sense, but uh, do, do you just stop riding? Is it a dead end? Is it an obstacle, or is it an opportunity? Do you just stop dead in your tracks and go home, or is it a chance to ride somewhere else, to go a different way, to find a new path, to go maybe off of the street and to go off into, say, like where we live, onto the riverbed and find a path somewhere in the dirt and find a new way to get there that's a little more exciting and a little more full of opportunity to, to see things and to do fun things. The apostle learned in his missionary journey 
that when God himself or when others put up an obstacle to him, it was not a dead end to his service to God, but it was an opportunity to serve in another way. So you turn back to chapter 16, just briefly men, uh, want to mention this and remind us of what we've seen so far. He, uh, he and uh, Silas were traveling and they wanted to go through the region of Asia, which is a region in modern day Turkey. He wanted to go with Silas into Asia, but the Lord said no. And when God said no to Asia, he opened up an opportunity for them to go to Phrygia and to Galatia. And we can read about that in the letter to the Galatians. And then they wanted to go to Bithynia. And I mentioned before, as they traveled, they wanted to make a big, uh, uh, a big clockwise turn and come back home to Antioch. But God said, no, you can't go into Bithynia back the way that you want to go. You have to go to Troas, the, the ancient city of Troy. Why? What was the opportunity when God put up the, the roadblock and the sign and the obstacle and the no through traffic and the dead end to Bithynia and Paul had to go to Troas? Why was God doing that? Chapter 16, verse 6 and following. God wanted Paul to get where? Where do you want him to go again? Macedonia. Macedonia. And he gets to Macedonia, and who are those two famous converts in chapter 16? Lydia, the purple tanner, and the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer. Now, the Philippian jailer was not just a jailer in abstract, he was Paul's jailer. So even when God sent him to Macedonia, it brought great cost. As Paul, uh, as Jesus told that rich young ruler, you've got to be willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he went and he followed God's call and he was put in a deep, dark dungeon at night. Paul said it was not a dead end. In fact, he and Silas sang praise to God at night. All the prisoners heard the gospel in song and the Philippian jailer rushes to them as the angel opened up those doors miraculously. What must I do to be saved? And he and his whole household were saved. Dead ends are never dead ends when it comes to God. They are opportunities for a new path and for a new opportunity to bring the gospel to someone else somewhere else. Even as Paul here, he shakes off his clothes and, and he says, your guilt, your blood be upon yourselves and go to the Gentiles. Even as the synagogue leaders refused him to come in again to preach, Paul said this was an opportunity to go to the Gentiles. There's always someone else and there's always somewhere else to go and to share the gospel. And in chapter 17, we saw that as well. As Paul and Silas continued to journey, they were in Philippi. Uh, they, were, uh, they, they had to leave the city as they were beaten. Uh, they, they left and they went to Thessalonica. And again, we can read of that in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Paul was probably there for no more than three weeks, maybe a couple of months. Max, max. But he had such an impact there, and they on him, that he wrote to them two letters. But again, he was run out of town. There was a dead end signed in Thessalonica, but yet that led them somewhere else. It led them to Berea. 
And the same thing, they go to Berea and the gospel is open, the door is open, the word of God is beginning to spread and the Bereans are examining daily the scriptures to see if, if the Messiah is Jesus, if Jesus is Messiah. But yet, again, there's a, there's a roadblock. Those leaders and their rabble traveled from Thessalonica to Berea and chased Paul out of Berea, but that leads him to Athens. And he gets to Athens and he's sharing, we read there uh, a couple of Sundays ago, he's sharing the gospel on the, in the synagogue on Saturdays and the rest of the week in the marketplace, in the Agora, he's sharing the gospel and some philosophers hear him speaking. Would Paul have, in his own wits and his own mind, have gone to Athens? We're not sure. But the Lord led him there through trials, through obstacles. And he gets to speak to that Athenian Council, uh, the Areopagus or Mars Hill. But again, he has to leave. He ends up in Corinth. Probably the last place he thought he'd spend 18 months in Corinth. And even, but notice, even when the Jews forbid him from preaching in the synagogues, he stays there and shares the gospel with the Gentiles and the church is built up. Many obstacles in his ministry. But they all become opportunities. I want you to see there in chapter 18, as, we, as, we, uh, as I read chapter 18, Paul in Corinth, I want you to turn with me to three passages that are listed out there on the order of service or in the, uh, in the, in the sermon notes page. Three passages from Corinthians that we get an insight into Paul seeing how obstacles were opportunities. So notice 1 Corinthians 4. just going to quickly glance at these and then make a few points and we'll move on. But notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse number 9, he's telling them this in his first letter, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. And he's reflecting upon all that he's gone through. Because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Think about that. He's... He had come from Corinth. He had just been in Athens. These great hubs of Greek and Roman philosophy and affluence and, and influence. They, are, they, were, they were looked at as foolish men. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So notice even the obstacles and the, op- and, and the oppositions that the apostles felt and faced were for the benefit of others. Verse 11, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. That's what Jesus said to do. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 and following. Notice what he says in the second letter. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, which he's just been talking about, is the gospel. We have the gospel like a treasure, and we have it in jars of clay, speaking of, our, of, of his frail human body. We have the eternal treasure of the glory of the gospel in jars of clay, 
Why? To show that the surpassing power of the gospel belongs to God and not to us. Now listen to this, verse verse 8. We are afflicted in every way. Obstacles, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, no doubt in his human nature, Paul no doubt didn't want to go through obstacles. Who wants to be shipwrecked? Who wants to float on a piece of wood in the Mediterranean? Who wants to be put in prison? Who wants to have shackles on your your hands and feet? Who wants to be beaten? Who wants to be lashed 39 times? Death is at work in us, but life in you, Paul says. And finally, 2 Corinthians 6. Speaking of the gospel of God's own righteousness, chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, working together with him, with Christ, God, then we appeal to you, Corinthians, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We, verse 3, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. That's why he was a tent maker. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots. We'll see that in Ephesians, chapter uh, in Acts 19 in Ephesus. Labor, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Think about that rich young ruler again. He had everything, but he had nothing. Jesus says, if you give up everything, you will have not just a bunch of stuff in this life, a hundredfold in the life that is to come as having nothing yet possessing everything. And so Paul learned and he wants us to learn a few things from that that, we've, that I've pointed out from time to time. First of all, this. You and I are to approach every moment of our daily lives as spirit-led opportunities to live in the fi- before the face of God in front of the world. That's what Paul's saying here. That's, that's what he did. Every moment was an opportunity. Even when great hardship came, it was an opportunity to show and to share the gospel. Secondly, you need to see, like the Apostle Paul, you need to see the opportunities by faith, not by sight. He's in Corinth and things seem to be going fairly well. Then all of a sudden there's once again 
that rabble, the crowds, forbidding him from preaching, sharing the gospel in the synagogue. But he kept on preaching. We've seen this before. When they thought he was lying there dead, back in chapter 14, he got up, he went back into the city, and he preached, he shared the gospel. See the opportunities before you by faith, not by sight. Don't see the dark, empty dungeon. Don't see the chains in your hand and feet. See the opportunity to use your voice to sing and to preach and to praise God. And who knows who will hear. Thirdly, Embrace your identity in Christ, who himself suffered and rose again. Why can Paul say all this that he, that in, in those passages from Corinthians? Why can he say all that? Be down but not forsaken, perplexed but not in despair, dying but living. How can he say all that? Because Christ died and was raised to new life. That's your identity in, in him. Embrace that. Embrace that. And you see that here in chapter 18. He's, he embraces that identity. And he says, if the Lord's going to close the door for me to preach the gospel in synagogues, I'm going to go to the Gentiles and bring new life to them. And suddenly he finally run out of town that he has to leave. Embrace your identity in Christ. So approach every moment every day as a spiritual opportunity. See those opportunities by faith, not by sight. And embrace your identity in suffering with Christ so that you might one day with him rise again. Secondly, notice this. Paul is learning this in in Corinth, and he's learned it previously as well, that predestination is the reason to preach. Predestination is the reason to preach. Now, the gospel is Jesus Christ. We heard that on Easter Sunday morning once again this year. The gospel is Jesus Christ. That his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that's the gospel. We proclaim you the, the things that are of foremost importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he, ra- and, 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 and he, and he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is the center of the stage of the Christian faith. But behind the curtain of that stage, we might say, behind that curtain is the work of God. The secret, mysterious, unknown work of God. His purpose and his plan. And we only know of that purpose and plan because he reveals some of that to us in his word. We've got to keep Christ central, but we have to also realize that all that is going on is because God has a purpose and plan from all of eternity. Go back to chapter 13. 13, verse 48. Just one verse. Remember when Paul was preaching to the Gentiles in Antioch and Pisidia, Luke wrote to us that, uh, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then there's this amazingly interpreting statement that helps us make sense of so much of the Bible. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as God from all of eternity 
Apart from works, apart from our knowledge, apart from our understanding, apart from our comprehension, apart from any of that, God had already had a plan. And as many as he had pointed for eternal life in that place at that time, that's as many as believed. No more, no less. If one person believed, it was God's purpose. If a million people believed, it was God's purpose. As many as he appointed, those are the ones who believed. And then we come to chapter 16 on the second missionary journey. Again, that story of Paul and, and Silas are traveling through uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia uh, Minor, uh, in, in the Roman Empire. Why not? Why not Asia? Why not Bithynia? Why did the Holy Spirit say no to Asia? Why did he f- uh, hinder and forbid them from going to Bithynia? God's electing purpose. We might say only God knows. Only God knows. It's for us as Christians to rest in that. Why this person? Why not that person? Why am I saved and someone else in my family is not? Why is the gospel flourishing there and it's not flourishing here? Only God knows. Leave it to him. It's not for you and I to know. It's not for us to go behind the curtain and to see every single name written in the Lamb's book of life inscribed with his blood. It's not for us to see that. It's only for us to spread the word, to share the gospel, and to rejoice when as many believe, believe. And so they went to certain places and not other places. Why? Because of God. It was God's purpose and plan. And we see that here in in, in Acts 18 where Paul is there and he's experiencing now some persecution uh, at the synagogue, the hands of the synagogue. And he has a vision in the night. The last time Paul had a vision in the night was when? In Acts, in the story of Acts, when's the last time he had a vision at night? Remember that, that vision? Who appeared to him at night? A man from Macedonia. Chapter 16, a man from Macedonia. And the Lord said this to him, Do not be afraid. Right? The obstacles. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? Verse 10, I, for I am with you. Notice the presence of, of the Lord with Paul. I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. Why? What does he say at the, at the end of verse 10 there? For what? I have many in this city who are my people. Now notice the next verse says that he then spent 18 months. So this is right at the beginning of his ministry. But God is telling him that he has many in that city. What is he saying? What does that mean, I have many in this city? Have have all those many already believed? No, he's got 18 more months to go. There are elected people here. You don't know who they are yet. But you're going to know who they are. They're going to hear the voice of Christ through your words, and they are going to believe. I have many in this city. Why that many and not this many? Only God knows. Only God knows. From our vantage point, the book of Revelation tells us that when, when John looks into heaven, he sees a multitude that no man can number. 
But then he hears the voice of 144,000, right? So we know that God knows his own. God knows whom he has chosen from all of eternity. He knows the exact number. He knows every single one of our faces. He knows every single circumstance of our lives. He knows the exact moment when a person is going to believe. God knows all that stuff. It's not for us to know that stuff. It's for us to know that God has many people in this place. Now go speak. Now go speak. I have many, he says. And we see something of this in Paul's uh, other letters. I want you to look at two more verses there. Second uh, Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy, sorry. 2 Timothy chapter number 1. Just like two verses there. Look at how Paul, Paul reflects upon this in his letters from time to time. And he gives us a little, uh, a little insight into, into the meaning of all this. And he says to Timothy, and his, this is Paul's, as far as we know, his last letter that he wrote. And he tells Timothy, Pastor Timothy, who's in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse number 8. He tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of, nor of me, his prisoner. Because Paul was imprisoned in, in Rome. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul knew that very well, didn't he? Then he says this in verse verse number 9, speaking of the power of God. Who, meaning God, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not, notice, not because of our work but because of his own purpose and grace. And then he further explains, notice he sort of peels the onion, which, this purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Well, then why, why preach? If if the grace has already been given to us in Christ before the ages began, because notice what verse 10 says which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. God's eternal purpose is made visible in human time in Jesus. And then verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher. There's God's eternal purpose. There's the giving of Jesus. There's the sending of the word of the gospel through preaching. In other words, we believe wholeheartedly, as the scriptures teach us, that God has not only predestined the end, meaning the goal, the purpose, the the final number of all those who are elect, he's also predestined the means to that end. What's the means to get people to that end of salvation? What's the means? It's preaching the gospel. It's preaching the gospel. There's no such thing as just let go and let God. There's no such thing as, well, God, is gonna, if he's going to save people in a certain place, in a certain city, in a certain country, he's going to save them no matter what. There's no such thing as that. He saves sinners through hearing the gospel proclaimed, and it takes actual people to actually speak that word. God has predestined the end, meaning the number of the saved, and the means to get that number of the saved saved. He's called us to a holy calling. Not because of works, but because of his purpose and grace. Manifested in Christ before the world began, yet preached and proclaimed. And finally, Titus chapter 1. Titus 1, the very beginning of his, of his letter to Titus, he says something like this as well. 
He called himself Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, right? For their benefit. Why am I an apostle, he says? Why am I a servant of God? For the benefit and the sake of those whom God has chosen. And their knowledge of the truth, that knowledge accords with godliness, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised, he promised eternal life before the ages even began. But then notice verse 3. As Calvinists, as Reformed people, we can sometimes, we can, we can sometimes latch onto verse 2 and we forget verse 3. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. If anyone ever stands here, if I'm ever gone on vacation, by the way, and, and anyone ever stands here and tells you that this doesn't matter, you don't really need to do this. God is a God of predestination. God is a God of election. God is a God who has eternally done all the work already. If anyone ever comes to you and says something like that, and, or, or even just a little bit lessens, lessens the, uh, the impetus or the, the urgency that not just me, but all of us have. If anyone ever says to you that we, you know, we don't really need to take the Great Commission that seriously because Jesus Christ is King and He's going to figure it all out anyway. If anyone ever says that, you need to drive him out of here. Don't, deacons, don't pay him that Sunday. Okay? Don't write a check, kick him out of here. That's not what we believe. That's not the Bible. That's not scriptural. That's not what Jesus taught, what the, what the prophets taught, what the apostles teach. That's not what we say as, as, as historic Protestants, as, as Calvinists, as Reformed people. We don't say that. We don't believe that. People say that we say that, or they, they say that we believe that, and knuckleheads go online and they, and they say things like that, pretending to represent what we don't say. God has promised eternal life from all of eternity, but it's manifested through preaching. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If there's, we might, humanly speaking, say, again, God is God, he can do what he wants, but humanly speaking, no preaching, no salvation. No preaching, no one coming to faith. If there's no preaching, no one who's elect can be saved. Humanly speaking. Because God has so linked that, connect, that, that connection between eternity past and eternity future with now in human time and space and history. And so let's share the gospel. Let's, be, let's pray for the lost. Let's be diligent. Expect me to preach the gospel that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Let's believe that wholeheartedly and expect that God is going to save sinners. Well, finally, and, and really quick, I promise really quick, Paul learned as well in his missionary journey, or journey so far, he learned that strength is found in weakness. Again, he learned that strength is found in weakness. He thought he knew the path to take throughout Asia Minor in chapter 16. He thought he knew where the best places to go were. He thought he was most equipped for this place and that place and not that place or not that place. No, but God had a plan. He thought he had it all figured out. But God said, no there, no there, you're going to go there. And 
knowing that God knows that, gave him great confidence. Remember in chapter 16, he had that vision of the man at night, the man from Macedonia. He wasn't planning to go there. He was going to plan to go back home. And we read there in chapter 16, verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, how long did it take him to go to Macedonia? When Paul had seen the vision, the man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us, how long did it take Paul and Silas to go? Immediately. Immediately. Even though he came, his, his wisdom he learned was weak, but God's he learned was strong, and so he went. And so he went. And even when God sent him there to Macedonia, they came to Philippi, that great city of Macedonia, and he was imprisoned. He learned that in that weak state, in prison, chained to a wall, in a dark place, with no food or water, with no hope, he learned there that it was the Lord who was strong. They sang hymns to God at night, and people were saved. And God miraculously freed them. Again, in Thessalonica, they preached, or Paul preached, uh, with Silas. They preached the word with great zeal, with great effect, yet they were kicked out. They were run out of town. And you can read in 1 Thessalonians especially, Paul has this great affection for the, for, the, for the church in Thessalonica. Just a great love for them. He calls himself a father to them, even like a mother to them. They were his spiritual children. He loved them. He was there for such a short period of time, but he loved them with great affection. But they were kicked out. They were run out of town. He got to Berea. Again, run out of town. Preach, get run out of town. Athens, the same thing. What we, what we see in this idea that he learned that strength is found in weakness is that Paul, in this missionary journey from one place to another, from one place to another, Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. He was living proof of what Jesus promised that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the work of Christ, the church. Everywhere he went, he suffered, he was persecuted, he was beaten, he was run out of town, he was ostracized, he was mocked, and so forth. But he learned that in that weakness was found the strength and the power of God. And so he gets to Corinth. It's the same thing all over again. It's the same thing all over again. But here's what Paul said about all this. All this, his own wisdom, his own physical strength, his own speaking ability, all of his personal strength, anything that he thought he could offer on the altar to God as something that was worthy of God Blessing him, he says it's all nothing. God's strength is what matters. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if I must go on boasting, uh, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man can, cannot utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. Speaking of himself here, actually. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my own weakness. 
Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more, gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why does he say that? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, the very last little phrase. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I am strong. May the Lord cause us more and more to to know these truths, brothers and sisters. This coming week, the weeks to come, the months to come, the years to come, the Lord, the Lord, for, uh, if the Lord uh, tarries, that obstacles are opportunities to share the gospel in this place. That God's electing love from all of eternity is a reason for you and me to share the gospel. And that in all that, God's strength is manifested and found in our own personal weakness. May God be glorified. May he be strong. May he be praised amongst us. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us with the word today and for granting us this place to assemble as brothers and sisters, as a family of God, to sing, to pray, to give our lives to you once again. And we ask now as we come to your table that you would work within us by your Holy Spirit to to give us that confidence of faith, Lord, to see life around us by faith, not by sight to see that we are called by you, that we are messengers, that we are called out of the world, Lord, to be like the apostle on a mission to spread the gospel until you come again. And so give us confidence. Help us reflect upon these words today. May you be praised above all. And we ask all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. If you have the hymnal, you can turn along with me. Uh, Number 197, we want to transition our minds and hearts from hearing the word to receiving the Lord's Supper.